Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back. Friday, June 16th, 2023. We made it through a week, another week. Well, almost. We'll see. We'll see. We're not quite there yet. 602-508-0960. Open lines this hour, of course. David, young David, has earned himself yet a new nickname. Henny Penny. Chicken Little. You were running around here with your head on fire thinking everything was... I'm going to give you a piece of advice that I have given charges I've worked with over the years, and it works everywhere but in medical school, okay? We're not heart surgeons. No one dies if we make a mistake. You learned the value of, the value of that today, didn't you? On this week I learned. Yes. Okay. On this week I learned. <laughs> I tease. I received a lot of great feedback from my interview with Mark Bauerlein on education yesterday and how the traditional modes have been defenestrated and how it's working out. It underscores two views, really, of education. Some believe education is about teaching children to read and write and be numerate. That is the traditional notion of the purpose of schools. Some believe schools are to train ideologically into right thinking, so to speak, and we can call it the avant-garde or progressive view of education. You see examples of the progressive view all over, and it is today dominant. The head of the Los Angeles Teachers Union, Cecily Mayart Cruz, put this well in the height of school closures during COVID when she said, quote, our kids didn't lose anything. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They learned the difference between a riot and a protest. They know what an insurrection and a coup is, close quote. Notice how she said our kids didn't lose anything. We actually know they lost a lot, even just in reading and math. And notice the possession, the possessive our kids the loss in reading and math was not her concern. As she stated, her concern was with right think, ideology. The most important text guiding this view is one of the most read and studied and promoted in teachers' education programs, teachers' graduate schools, Paolo Ferrer's book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Ferrer was a dedicated Marxist, and his book is the tome studied by most teachers in training programs today. Ferrer saw all education as useful only if it categorized individuals, students, or society into categories of oppressed and oppressor, which immediately categorized human beings into collectives, collectives of collective responsibility, where actors, for good or evil, were acting themselves as a result of the race or culture they were born into. Ferrer was famous for saying, quote, the educator has the duty of not being neutral, close quote, not being neutral. I go back to what teacher Daniel Buck wrote of his master's program and 
what he found in it so represented or representative elsewhere. I quoted it with Mark Bauerlein yesterday. He said, quote, we made Black Lives Matter friendships bracelets. We passed around a popsicle stick to designate whose turn it was to talk while professors compelled us to discuss our lives' traumas. We read, we read poems through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory in preparation for our students doing the same. Our final projects were acrostic poems or ironic rap videos, close quote. Why is this important now, today? Because we look around and still wonder how we got... To such an odd place in America, a place where you are denounced if you believe in what was deemed progressive in the 1960s or 1970s, that some things in nature should be recognized and nurtured, not shamed and changed like perhaps the sex you were born into. Girls were to be empowered as girls and women, and boys were not to be shunned, whatever their body type or physical ability, but equally recognized and nurtured. Today, we have generals in the Army and Space Force saying that if we do not coddle the transgender, which is to say sex change movement, it will be a threat to the mission of our military. I quoted a general on that yesterday. This may have all started with the notion of shame and the sense of it is a shame to be a boy or a man. The phrase toxic masculinity became popular in the early 1990s and grew and grew such that by only 13 years ago, the American Psychological Association could write the following, quote, traditional masculinity is psychologically harmful, close quote. Traditional masculinity is harmful. Today, we see, as Peachy Keenan told us earlier this week, single women all over the place asking where are the men or where are the strong men? There is a much more prominent question now, but it has been asked for some time. In 1997, one of the top ten songs in the country was Paula Cole's Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, the chorus. Where is my John Wayne? Where is my Prairie Song? Where is my Happy Ending? Where have all the cowboys gone? Where is my Marlboro Man? Where is his shiny gun? Where is my Lonely Ranger? Where have all the cowboys gone? Close quote. Well, Society and elite culture, from the education system to the psychological associations to the politicians, emasculated them. First telling them these martial exemplars and virtues were toxic, and then that they could actually literally and physically just overcome it all by transitioning, changing, becoming into a woman. And now it's a political war. If you doubt it, a sign of bigotry or hate if you resist it. If you pass a law in a state not to allow it before the age of 18, you are targeting LGBTQ rights, targeting. You are engaging in hate and bigotry. You can't get a tattoo if you are 17 or buy a cigarette, but you can change your sex permanently. And only, not only can you, we will encourage it. Nobody sings of John Wayne anymore, and his name affixed to Orange County Airport is on trial. Last year, the Orange County Board of Supervisors authorized $50,000 to come up with a new name and logo. Logo, I could do it for free. Just don't change it. Of course, too, the whole term cowboy has become pejorative. Recall in 2021 the false report that Border Patrol agents were whipping Haitian immigrants. Maxine Waters said, quote, these cowboys are engaging in something worse than slavery, close quote. Anyway... Back to our education system and its responsibility here. Playing cowboy, cops and robbers, 
or having toy guns is the unhealthy thing and pretty much gone from the scene. The effort now is to get books like, well, quote, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. The effort is to get books like The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope recommended for pre-K audience as standard education fare to get books like that adopted. We should be naming boys Telemachus, not Penelope, it seems to me, but nobody thinks Homer is important to read and understand anymore. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said in the opening line of his aptly named book, The Abolition of Man. Quote, I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. Close quote. Smart man, C.S. Lewis. I want to pick this up with Rabbi Elush later in our show, but there's a fascinating phrase and instruction in a part of the Talmud titled, Ethics of Our Fathers. Reform Judaism, that is to say the progressive wing of Judaism, has changed the title to Ethics of Our Ancestors, of course. But in the original, there was a great instruction in Ethics of Our Fathers, quote, where there are no men, strive to be a man. Men and man are gone, also in the Reform version, of course, just as fathers are gone. And we can do that, of course, erase and shame men and martial virtues from society. We did it two days ago in Alvin Bragg's New York, indicting, as his grand jury did, the Marine veteran Daniel Penny for his heroism on a New York subway. A threatening man, likely hopped up on drugs, with a violent and felonious past, was threatening passengers on a subway, yelling he was ready to die as he was assaulting them, and he was put in a chokehold to stop him by Daniel Penny. There were warrants out for the arrest of this threatening man, attesting to his many past and then current felonies, and in that hold he died. Penny is now indicted. He is the criminal. We have criminalized not just the innocent, but the hero. The man who, seeing no others, strived to be one, along with two other people. I guess the manly thing and the just thing in our society would have been for people like Daniel Penny to just watch the assaults take place as they were about to turn into violent felonies again with his fellow passengers. For years, there was a 1960 story baseline or a baseline story that guided the true shame of inaction in these situations from a, from a story about a woman named Kitty Genovese who was brutalized in Queens while bystanders stood around, stood by, watched and did nothing. Psychologists have studied this effect and called it plural ignorance. Roughly described, a majority of group members privately reject a norm, but at the same time they assume incorrectly that most others accept it. The term describes a context in which no one believes, but everyone thinks that everyone believes, and people would act differently, more nobly, generally alone than in a group dynamic that dictates a different ethic. Daniel Penny, trained as he was in the martial virtues, either in his upbringing or in the Marines, did something to avoid, whether he knew the example or not, the Kitty Genovese shame, while almost everyone else engaged in the plural ignorance that the smart thing to do was wait for the addled and crazed assailant to hurt or kill someone as he was threatening to do. And we create further emasculation and plural ignorance by making him the hero, the criminal. We keep teaching, not just in our schools or psychology or politics, but now the criminal law 
that courage and virtue, the martial and manly virtues, are obsolete and need to be suppressed. And so men fail a lot, themselves, society, and women. But the societal message seems to be, so what? And the answer to that is, well, increased anxiety and confusion and distress in our young boys and increased failure, work avoidance, marriage and child-rearing avoidance, and laziness and apathy and alcohol and drug abuse in our young male adults. Why, after all, is the number one cause of death for young males today drug overdose or what we should really call drug poisoning? I have an answer. Increased anxiety, confusion, and distress implanted by the progressive education and therapy professions to our young males, combined with the avoidance of teaching right and wrong and the erasure of role models. Professor Waller Newell wrote a few years back that, quote, as a culture, we have never been more conflicted about what we mean by manhood, close quote. As we head into Father's Day, maybe we should all think a little bit on this. After all, we can keep spinning Penelope's web as a society, or we can be Penelope's son, Telemachus, teaching boys how to become men, and not just males, but men. Not just males who can become women, but men, heroic men. Seems we need more of that, not less, just now. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-5089-60. Young David, what's our pin say today? It looks like it's a little smaller than most oftenly worn pins by you. Indeed. It's a small pin for a soft-spoken president. Oh, it yeah? Says, keep Coolidge. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Silent Cal. He didn't even want his pins to be Probably voluble. not. Yeah. yeah. Two words, short and sweet. Yeah, short and sweet. But boy, you read his speeches, and they said a lot. I think his best speech was um, the speech on the uh, 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, the July 4th speech of 1926. That was one of his best. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there on the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. I think, too, that it was a rebuke intended to be a rebuke to Woodrow Wilson and his progressive view of the Declaration of Independence. You know, Wilson, who was uh, a PhD in political science and a professor uh, before he was governor and president, he was uh, one of the leaders of the progressive movement. And his speeches and writings on the Declaration of Independence tell you almost everything you need to know about the progressive mind. You got yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I'm not very familiar with Coolidge, but yeah. I'm going to have to uh, yeah. read that. Speech yeah, read now. that speech. I'm, I'm more familiar with his. Uh, I think it was his. Uh, he broke the strikes in Massachusetts, yeah. and that's what led to his national attention. Yeah. I, I know a bit more about his uh, actions and less about his words. Yeah, well, because <laughs> he didn't say. Many. Well, that speech <laughs> from 1926 is July 4th speech, so it's a rebuke to Wilson's progressive view of the Declaration. Wilson's view was that the Declaration's self-evident truths were not 
permanent, that they were up to each generation. I mean, Wilson actually said this. They were up to each generation to define what their truths and rights were. And uh, the point of Coolidge's speech was that, no, no, when, a, when, when grounded in nature, as the Declaration says, and when um, spoken of as self-evident, um, they are not only permanent, but that there should be a calm about them. And what he meant by there being a calm about them is that let's stop with the frenzy. Let's stop with the continual need to expand beyond what the beauty and import and poignancy of the Declaration of Independence itself stood for, which was the allowing of man to express his conscience, his freedoms, and his rights with no limiting principles put upon them up to their greatest potentials, limiting principles limited only by God, by nature. And that the progressive experiment that took away from that calm, who, who was our guest the other day? John Shattuck, he was talking about the social compact. You know, beyond those things we give up to form our society that we had in the land of jungle or nature to form a compact with each other, beyond those things that we voluntary, voluntarily give up to have a civil society with a government that respects our rights, there's a reason that the Declaration of Independence came around in the Age of Enlightenment, where human beings, as Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration, put it, were not born to be booted and spurred like horses with certain other human beings given the rights to mount and ride them. It was a vision of the human being as a free man. Wilson and the progressives want to change that, and to do that by overcoming nature, starting with the reinterpretation of the Declaration of Independence. Okay, I didn't mean to get off on that. How did I? No, that was because so of your political pin. That's how. Okay, go read that speech. That's your home. That's the homework assignment for the weekend, folks. If you haven't read Calvin Coolidge's Fourth of July speech from 1926, you'll want to. I don't give out a lot of assignments. I gave a listener an assignment, to, and he was supposed to call back in. He was oh, supposed to listen to Keith Whitley's Miami, right. Miami. Yeah, and it's a great song. I Did he ask for Wednesday an extension? Night. Did he ask uh, you for an extention, the teacher's assistant? No. The we, sorcerer's we have, apprentice? Yeah, we have yet to uh, have We haven't the, gotten his yeah, book report yet, have we? No. All right. Well, we don't give out extensions around here. He won't get any fruit cup if he's late. Demerit. Demerit. We'll be right back. Little Trini Lopez. Welcome back. Seth Leibson Show, 602 I'm right. That's Trini Lopez, right? You betcha. Yeah. It's Trini, baby. And yeah. you know who he was discovered by? Oh, boy. Harry Belafonte? Oh, no. You don't know this? No. Oh, he was discovered at a little nightclub called PJ's yeah. by Frank Sinatra. PJ, PJ's in New York? Mm -hmm. That's how— uh, PJ Clark's? I, I, I think I'm right. I don't know about that. 
about that. Check before. oh, check that out. I, I don't think. know how far. I don't know the extent of the uh, Trini and Sinatra. PJ Clark's. They did I'm guessing. Do a movie together. I'm guessing PJ Clark's. If only there was a way we could find this out. You had a question before you go looking to find it. Before, <laughs> before you go, go spelunkering. Spelunkering. Yeah. This uh, President Wilson versus President yeah. Coolidge, yeah. is that what they call uh, strict versus loose constructionism? Interesting. Yeah. Well, usually strict construction is relates to um, the Constitution and the constitu- interpretations of the Constitution. What you got from the view of the Federalist Society, what you got from Ed Meese, and it's become probably most well, most famously associated of all the Supreme Court justices with Hanton and Scalia. You don't hear it applied much to the Declaration of Independence or as much to the Declaration of Independence. It's more apt to the Constitution. Um, with regard to taking the Declaration or taking the founders seriously – uh, or not. Uh, it's really more of the progressive view of the founding versus a traditional view of the founding, or as Leo Strauss put it, it taking uh, the founders um, as seriously as they took themselves, understanding them as they understood themselves rather than the progressive experiment, which was to gloss modern day, modern conceptions and, uh, and, and onto them. Uh, so really, you get more more of the construction versus uh, strict construction versus uh, living document theories of the Constitution, or expansionist views of the Constitution, or ever evolving Constitution. Usually, it's it has to do with that when it comes to cases constitutional interpretation. Uh, the Declaration, of course, preceded the Constitution, and I believe informed it. Um, and I. During the break, while I wasn't looking up Frank Sinatra's in, invention of Trini Lopez, uh, I was uh, reaching into history to get Calvin Coolidge's speech on the 4th of July uh, in 1926, where he says, About the Declaration, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. This was the rebuke to Wilson and the progressives. It it is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we have had new thoughts and new experiences, which has given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. It's got to be Wilson he's talking about. It's got to be. But that reasoning, Coolidge says, cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern but more ancient than those of the Revolutionary Fathers. How perfectly apt that that was his description of Wilson. The more you read it, the more you conclude that. And it's interesting that Coolidge points out in his implicit criticism of Woodrow Wilson in uh, – in, uh, and his progressivism, that those kinds of progressives, those kinds of people using the word progressive, um, wish to proceed in that direction, is 
pushing us actually backward toward the time when there was no equality and no rights of the individual. Because what is one thing – well, I, I'm sure every textbook is pretty good on this these days. But what is one thing a lot of us didn't know about Wilson until about you know the scholarship of about 50 years ago? That he was a deep racist who did not believe in equality and the rights of the individual. How perfect – did Calvin Coolidge understand the direction of that thought? You know what I worry about? I worry about the semi-centennial. I worry about our 250th anniversary coming up in about three years. God, please, can you imagine if it's done under President Joe Biden? Can you imagine how disastrous that will be? How terrible, what a down market view of patriotism we would have? We'll be right back. Well, our crack research team, uh, led by young David over here, uh, discovered it was not in New York at P.J. Clark's, but P.J.'s, which was the first discotheque in Los Angeles. West Hollywood, that's West correct. Hollywood, yep. preceding even Whiskey-A-Go-Go, but inspiring such places as Whiskey-A-Go-Go. We can only assume. No, no, we can know. We can know. Um, yeah, speaking of – it doesn't exist anymore, and speaking of places that don't exist anymore – uh, San Francisco, as we used to know it, doesn't exist anymore. AT&T is now abandoning, permanently shuttering its flagship store in San Francisco on Powell Street. Um, reading from the Post Millennial, the news of the closure comes one day after Cinemark announced that it is closing its theater in the city's biggest mall, San Francisco Center, just days before Westfield announced it was sent surrendering the shopping center. Due to its uh, to its lender, due to rampant crime, all of them leaving because of rampant crime. Uh, before Cinemark and Westfield, the San, uh, the San Francisco set Center would only be fifty five percent leased. Park Hotels and Resorts announced that it had stopped making its mortgage payments and turned over two hotels to the bank: the Hilton San Francisco Union Square and Park Fifty Five, all due to crime. Old Navy, Whole Foods, T-Mobile, and other retailers have also shut down their San Francisco operations. Um, Newsom still want to brag about the growth in San Francisco and how much better a place it is than California is than Florida? Is he still able to do that with a credible face? Uh, certainly not. With a straight face, perhaps, but not a credible, not a credible voice. You know, we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about this too, probably with Pete Peterson coming up. You know what happens when we just turn everything over to anarchy and the lack of enforcement of norms and laws? What happens when, rather than arrest, well, let me put it this way: prevent and arrest crime, you ignore nurture and encourage it truly what happens well now we know now we know we have it in sharp relief as to what happens william buckley um william buckley when he was running for mayor of new york put it that um the protection of the individual against the criminal 
is the first and highest function of government. The failure of government to provide protection is nothing less than the failure of government. The government has failed. The government has failed way too many communities and way too many cities. And what does it say? I mean, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment to engage politicians that talk about Barack Obama is now on this tear, now joining the systemic racism cry and going after Tim Scott. That's what I guess you had to drag out, Barack Obama, if you're going to try and take Tim Scott down. So he's challenging him on this being a racist society now, too. But what does it say about uh, what is it? What does it say about the liberal nostrum of, well, we need to give better jobs and better schools to our underserved minority populations or underclass or, you know, under or, or, you know, deprived populations when there are no more schools or businesses for them to go to or get jobs at because of the dystopia you've allowed to grow and grow and fester and spread. How do you do it? How do you demand the function when you've removed the organ? And they've done it. Shelby Steele. Gosh, this is so interesting. Remember Shelby Steele? He was a guest on this show. I don't know. Might have been a might have been about a year ago, a little bit, something like that. Nine months, twelve months ago. Great scholar. Used to teach at uh, San Francisco State. Professor of English literature at San Francisco State, and wrote one of the uh, most important and first pioneering books on. Um, race in America from the perspective of a of a conservative African-American man, of a conservative black man. It was called The Content of Our Character, really one of the first books in the literature that would come down the pike questioning the values of race-based affirmative action and the damage it was actually doing to minority populations. So he goes with his son this week to San Francisco and his son is documenting, doing a bit of a documentary on his life, I guess. And they step away. They go in to get a, to get a coffee or, or, or grab a bite to eat. And they come back. And his car has been ransacked. And they can't get anyone on. They call 911 repeatedly to no answer. Shelby Steele. It doesn't matter what race you are. The criminal doesn't care anymore. The criminal doesn't care. What matters is that we have major cities with no businesses, no functioning schools, chronic homelessness. Do you know this cry about there not being enough beds for the homeless? In San Francisco, there are at the Salvation Army. There are people who are chronically homeless sleeping outside the front doors of the Salvation Army because they don't want to go into the Salvation Army, and they don't want to do that because why, Bill? Can you guess? Why? Yeah, because the Salvation Army welcomes them with open arms so long as they stop using drugs, and they will help them stop. It's one of the great recovery programs in the country. They'd rather not. They'd rather sleep in the street. 
Jesse Waters did a thing on this, and he saw he was interviewing these people, and they made what they thought was a coherent case. So what is San Francisco doing? It's giving out free needles and pipes to them. Why is it giving out free pipes to them? Glass pipes? Because their public health department believes that it is safer to smoke fentanyl than inject it. That's why. New York City has vending machines giving out glass pipes. I don't know why they call them vending machines, because they make it free. The idea of vending means theoretically that you actually have to buy the candy or the whatever you buy in vending machines these days. I guess that's what you buy, candy and sodas. They made it free. And in one day, they were out of inventory. In one day, they were out of inventory of their glass pipes. Because they think it's safer to smoke than inject. You know what that's called? It's called enabling. It's actually making the problem worse. The point I want to get across with these giveaways of glass pipes that these cities are now doing under the theory that something that suppresses your breathing is safer to smoke than inject is twofold. One, first time in 50 years that a public health department is encouraging smoking, anything, A. B, the second thing that is important here is to know is that they are giving away the most expensive part of the drug use by giving away those glass pipes. The glass pipes cost more than the fentanyl hits. Enabling isn't even strong enough a word for what they're doing. Now the economy. Stock markets up and down, volatility, a recession on the horizon that people keep talking about, inflation, which is anything but transitory, transitory bank failures. Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed, a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income off income on or off, compound it whatever you like with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. They're headquartered here locally, and they, like I, encourage you to stop by their officers, offices on Scottsdale Road and the 101. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. But when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you will too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10 and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Just log on to Invest, yrefi.com. The letter Y, and excuse me, that's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Invest, yrefi.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. I was mentioning, mentioning only a few segments ago that I, I dread a 250th anniversary of our Declaration of Independence under Joe Biden. I was given... More cause for worry about that today. Did you guys see, Bill, David, did you see what he said today at the closing of a speech at a Safer Community Summit? I did. <laughs> yeah. Does he know we had a Declaration of Independence? I'll play it for you. All right. God save the Queen, man. That's how he closed his speech. All right. God save the Queen, man. All right. God save the Queen. That's your President of the United States. All right. God save the queen, man. 
We were wondering if he sometimes was aware whether he was president or not. I think we now have to wonder whether he knows what country he's in or not. And I doubt very much he knows that there's a king right now. Well, that's a good point. That's a great point. (laughs) Does he know there's a king? (laughs) Well done, young David. Well done. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.